the best of the week on Relevant Radio. I have a note here. This is coming from David, and he's listening in Milwaukee. He says, Patrick, I come to you with confidence. I'm in dire need to be able to explain to a non-Catholic who is adverse to the idea of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It is ripping apart our relationship. I believe in the real presence. Can you lead me to an explanation that is not too deeply steeped in Catholic verbiage? So I'll do my best. What I would say is, number one, take a look at John chapter 6. This is what's called the bread of life discourse. Now, it takes place, we, we begin in verse 1, where Jesus, he is being followed, as he typically was, by a multitude of people, thousands and thousands of people following Jesus from one place to another. Can you imagine what that'd be like? So there he was, and he's teaching the people, and he, he feeds them miraculously. And what does Jesus do? He takes this very meager bit of food, and he blesses them. And this, by the way, when you see in, in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus giving thanks, in the Greek, that's where this word Eucharist comes from. That is the word Eucharist. Ephadisto uh, is how it's pronounced. I, I now know from my travels to Greece, I've learned this, that Ephadisto is the way, uh, at least the way an American would pronounce it, in modern Greek. But when you look at the Greek itself, that is the word Eucharist. So here we see an example of where Jesus feeds them miraculously. They have more than enough food, and so much so that there are 12 baskets left over. So after that, and that section ends in verse 14, and then we're told that the next day, he's now in the area of Tiberias, he's speaking to the crowds and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That was the prior day when he fed everybody. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which will endure to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. So this is the beginning of his, the, the prelude to what we would call the bread of life discourse, where he transitions from words such as, he who believes in me will never hunger, he who comes to me will never thirst, then he says in verse 41, the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And so some people are willingly being drawn, other people are unwillingly being drawn, and they dig their heels in, as you'll see in a few minutes. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. So here's another example of where Jesus is, you know, hey guys, do you realize who I am? It's written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God, and I am here to teach you. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, and whenever I read this passage, this is verse 50, I kind of imagine Jesus sort of with the fingers of his right hand kind of tapping himself on the chest as he says this. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now let's pause there for a second. That's verse 56. He's emphasizing about as forcefully, as emphatically, as as overtly as I can imagine somebody could emphasize this. He's saying, I really, I'm telling you the truth. I really mean it, guys. You really do have to eat my flesh and blood. And this is why there was such a consternation among many of these people, because it was unthinkable. Jesus, what are you talking about? Are you talking about cannibalism? Or we're going to walk up and bite off one of your fingers? Or what are you talking about? What does this mean? We don't understand it. So he led up to all this with the analogy of the bread, the man in the desert. Your fathers ate man in the desert. So this is in the in the book of Exodus when they're wandering after their their release from captivity in Egypt. And they're starving to death. And they're crying out for food. And what does God do? He miraculously provides this bread-like substance that was lying on the ground. And when they got out of their tents that morning, they look around, they see all this, and they say, what is this? That's what the word manna means, by the way, in Hebrew. What is it? So he's using this as the the ramp to lead the people to this teaching, which is, I've got something far better than man in the desert. That was miraculous, yes. Yesterday, you saw me miraculously feed all of you with just a few fragments of bread and fish. That was a miracle. Yeah, that's for sure. I've got something even more important than that. Well, what's that? Well, you're going to be called to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So this became kind of the sticking point for these people because he emphasizes it verse after verse. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 52. Verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 55. For my flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. In other words, yes, you really will be consuming my flesh and blood. Not in the way that you think. I'll get to that in a minute. But you really will because my flesh and blood are indeed food and drink. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Verse 58, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Again, imagine Jesus tapping his chest with the fingers of his right hand. This, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died, those in the wilderness. He who eats this bread will live forever. So at this point, people are just going berserk. How can this man say this? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at him, said to them, do you take offense at this? And by the way, let's pause on him for a minute. There are a lot of people still today who take offense at this. They don't like it. They try to explain it away. They try to spiritualize it. They try to 
allegorize it. They try to symbolize it. They try to say, to get away from the forcefulness of what Jesus is saying here. You notice that he doesn't say, if you eat bread that reminds you of me, you will have eternal life. If you go to communion service and you have a, uh, a little cube of bread and maybe uh, you have a little cup of grape juice that will remind you of my flesh and blood, he doesn't say that. He says, you will eat my flesh and blood. How? How will we do this? And that's what we see here when they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Aha! Some people will say, that's the key right there. Jesus is not saying any of this literally, because he says it's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's sometimes seen as like an escape hatch. Whew. Okay, we really don't have to think that this is being intended literally because, look, Jesus is saying it's the flesh is of no avail, so that can't be his real flesh. That's not what that means. <laughs> the flesh he's referring to here is the worldly, fleshly way of looking at things. That term flesh, sarks in the Greek, it's very often a term that means you're thinking about this in a worldly, fleshly way, flesh and blood, your own human experience, your own limited ideas. And this is the context here. He's saying it's the Spirit that gives life. The Spirit the Spirit of God is drawing you, your own fleshly ideas and your own fleshly uh, prejudices. That's not going to help you. The Spirit, the words that I'm speaking to you are Spirit and life. And one other thing to take note of, David, when it says here, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. If the person who's dismissing the import of John chapter 6 and the meaning of Jesus pointing to himself as the real bread of life, if they insist on that being the case in verse 63, then you ask, what are you going to do with the crucifixion? Because Jesus died for your sins in the flesh. It was his body that was crucified. I mean, obviously, all of Jesus, God and man, was there on the cross, but the nails pierced his flesh. The blood that flowed from his body was from his flesh, was from his body. So they can't have it both ways. If they say that the flesh is of no avail and there's no way that this could possibly be referring to Jesus in any real present sense, well, they then have a problem trying to explain how that can be true. And then at the same time, the flesh is of avail, because it was through the flesh and in, in the crucifixion of his flesh that Jesus saves us. So be sure to keep that reminder in your back pocket. Then in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. And here's where the rubber meets the road, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I can imagine, I can picture in my mind's eye, Simon Peter saying this with his tendency toward being brash and, you know, you know bold, dramatic statements. Lord, 
You know, if, if you're going to die, we will go die with you. I mean, he was very accustomed to these dramatic flourishes. And here he's not really doing that. He's, he's saying, we believe who else would we go to other than you, Lord? But I could easily imagine Simon Peter, not really, even he not really understanding exactly what Jesus meant. In other words, I believe you because it's you who are teaching this. I don't really understand what you mean. I don't really know what you mean, Lord, about flesh and blood and eating that. And, but I believe you because you are the one who is saying it to me. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve and one of you as a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. That's the end of the chapter. That's verse 71. So here's a, a thought as, as long as we're at this point. When did Judas betray Jesus? Here he's, it's foretold. When did it actually happen? It happened at the Last Supper. What happened at the Last Supper? Jesus celebrated the first Mass. He established the Holy Eucharist itself in the upper room at the Last Supper. This is my body, he said, taking the bread in his hands. This is my blood, he said, as he held the chalice in his hands. He didn't say, this bread, see this bread right here? This is going to remind you of my body. This is a symbol of my body. This is like my body, or this will represent my body. He didn't say that. He took the bread and said, this is my body. Similarly with the chalice of wine. He didn't say, this will remind you. Uh, you know, when you drink the wine, it will be kind of like a liquid reminder or an analogy of shedding of blood because the blood pours out, the wine pours out. So it's just an analogy, guy. No big deal, guys, no big deal. He doesn't say that. And it's there at the Last Supper that Judas betrays him as he's instituting the sacrament. So one or two more things to say on this point. Ask your friend this question. Go through John chapter 6. Ask your friend who's resistant to this understanding, why would those people who left Jesus leave him? Why? Why on earth would they do that? They had just seen Jesus perform miracles. They knew that he was... At the very least, he was a wonder worker. He could control the weather. He could read secret thoughts. He could cast out demons left and right. He cured blind people who were blind from birth. He cured people who were lame. He cured people who had all sorts of illnesses, things that no human being could, could deal with. They didn't have medicine in those days, not like we do. They didn't even know what these things were caused by. That's how primitive things were, and yet Jesus is left and right every day, healing people, raising people from the dead, for heaven's sake. So these are people who knew Jesus. They were with him. They saw him. They heard him. They saw the miracles, and they left him. Why? Ask that question. Why would they do that if Jesus just meant this in a symbolic way? If Jesus just meant all this stuff that he's talking about, man in the desert, and I'm the bread of life, and all that, and you eat my flesh and drink my blood, if, that, if, if, it was, if it was obvious to his listeners, as Protestants generally will say that it was, oh, you Catholics, come on, you silly Catholics believing in the real presence and all that stuff. I mean, that's not, that's not what Jesus meant. He just meant this is going to be a symbol of his body and blood. Okay, if that's the case, why did those people leave? Why did they leave? If it's just a symbol, why would they get upset? Why would they murmur among themselves? Why would they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? What are you talking about, who can listen to it? It's just a symbol. 
And Jesus used symbols all the time, fig trees and seed and sheep, and it was endless. Jesus taught them in parallel, so he used symbols and symbolism constantly. They were used to it. They understood it. And now they say, "Uh uh-oh, time out. I'm done. I'm out. I can't fall. I can't do this anymore because of what you're saying. So to me, David, if you just spend time with Jesus— in this passage, and imagine yourself, maybe you and your friend are sitting on a boulder nearby, and you're listening to Jesus preach this sermon and teach what he's teaching here, and then the people who wind up leaving, ask your friend, why would they leave? And the only real plausible answer, given the the context and the text, and the things that came before that, like the miraculous feeding with loaves, and all, all of the above, The only thing that makes any sense at all is they left him because he didn't mean it symbolically. And they recognized that. And that was something up with with which they would not put. That's the only thing that really explains their reaction for the reasons aforementioned. Like what you just heard? Share it with your family and friends. And thanks for listening.